Hey everyone, Logan here. A quick note before we start. As you listen to this week's episode, you may notice some static on David Serlin's audio at certain parts. Uh, we've since learned how to avoid this issue in the future, but unfortunately there was no way to remove it for this interview. We strive to bring all of you quality interviews and stories from amazing individuals in the video game industry, and this week is no different. David's story is incredible, and he shares some valuable insight that we've never discussed on the show before. I hope you'll bear with us for this episode, as I guarantee it's not one to be missed. And we'll continue working to bring you high-quality episodes each week. Thanks. Welcome to Indie Insider, presented by Blackshell Media. This is the weekly show where we talk with video game developers and professionals about their stories, their advice for others, and their thoughts on the indie video game industry. I'm Logan Schultz, and on today's show, I sit down and talk with David Serlin, a veteran video game and board game designer, fighting game competitor, and universe creator. We talk at length about his competitive career, his successes and failures in board games, his upcoming fighting game, Fantasy Strike, and creating a connected universe of characters and stories. As always, if you have thoughts, questions, or ideas on what we should do next, shoot me an email at logan at blackshowmedia.com. You can also find the most up-to-date news on the Indie Insider Podcast on Twitter by following at Logan A. Schultz. And now, David Serlin. Welcome to Indie Insider Today. I'm talking with David Serlin. David, how's it going? Hey, great. Thanks for having me on your show. Absolutely. I'm, I'm very excited to chat with you. You've had uh, a long history in the industry, and you've done some fantastic things and fantastic projects. Oh, thank and you're you. working on you're working on some exciting things, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited to have you on. And I'm excited we finally got it put together, because I know you and I have been talking for a little bit about getting together and chatting. Well, I've been busy making games and going to trade shows and so on, but, but now I've got some time for you. You do, <laughs> and I appreciate you taking the time. Um, it has been a busy... A couple of months in the industry, what are some of the things that you've been doing over the past few months? Well, for me, it's just been all about the trade shows I've been going to to exhibit my new fighting game, Fantasy Strike. We were at the PlayStation Experience show, Sony's show, in November, and then PAX, right, of course. And then PAX South, and then PAX East, and each one of those is a lot of preparation. Let me pick your brain on that a little bit. I mean, uh, we'll dive deep into Fantasy Strike in just a little bit, but what is it like taking a game to uh, these trade shows and these conferences? I mean, what sort of response are you seeing? Uh, are people excited to see you and see your game? Yeah, I mean, I've I've been to many trade shows, of course, in my life, but this is a, a kind of a different experience for me. So I've I've exhibited tabletop games of my own, uh, and I've attended as a fan, but this is the first time I've exhibited my own video games at any of these shows. Uh, so that's that's why it was. It was really new. And at the first one of those three I mentioned, the Sony PlayStation show, uh, we were very nervous about that, actually. And it's, it's because we had not really shown our game publicly ever. We've been working on it for quite a long time up until that point, but had not shown it until then. So that was kind of like an unveiling. And it, we were uncomfortable about it because we felt it was a little too early. E- you know, Even though we had been developing it a long time, uh, we really wanted to get farther along in, in graphical polish, but it was just such a good opportunity that we were just you know, like, okay, let's do it. Let's be there. So we were nervous about it, and it turned out really good And that uh, 
we had done okay right before that show we showed a trailer which was awful and we got a lot of <laughs> negative feedback and everyone hated us and uh, then we went to that show and everybody was like hey couple things this game looks better in person than in the trailer <laughs> and two it's really fun like everybody liked it we had i think 500 people play our game in our booth and uh like one of them didn't like it or something or two maybe two so it was overwhelmingly positive and that was a big morale boost for our whole team because we're like okay i guess we're on the right track because because everyone likes it tell me a little bit about this trailer i mean, we i don't think we've ever talked about that on the show before what made your trailer bad you said that it looked better in person <laughs> than in the video yeah what made it bad well we were a little rushed in making it because you know like i said uh we're trying to meet this this deadline for Sony's show. Okay, so the, a couple things. The, the main thing, really, is that um, to give some history, we, we were working on that game like, oh, I don't know, 15, 16, 17 months, something, something like that ahead of time. But most of it okay. was gameplay focused, and we had shifted over to, to inc improving our production values. And we were at a point where they were just like rapidly improving from total garbage, you know, to like, oh, a little better, a little better, a little better. And we just didn't quite reach our inflection point. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, yeah, it, it looked a lot better in the trailer than it had looked, say, two months or three months before that. But it's still just mm -hmm. the, the graphical fidelity was not there. The shading, the lighting, it just looks cheap, like a like a iPhone game or something, like, you know, a mobile game that had a low budget. And I know it. it it's not the character models. It's not the textures. It's... It's really the the lighting and shading that was just super bad in that version because we just hadn't gotten to working on that. And shortly after, we did a major overhaul, and I think it was in January, where it started looking much better. And so at the PAX South show and at PAX East, we had progressed to the point where um, it wasn't just hundreds of people saying that they thought the game was fun. Now they were saying, wow, the graphics. We heard polish over and over and over. And people actually literally said, is this a new Street Fighter? Like, we heard that comment a bunch of times. <laughs> yeah, oh, wow. Because they would see it out of the corner of their eye or something. There are a few compliments I can think of that are better than that, to be honest, for listening just to how your process was set up. So that's excellent. Yeah. Oh, well, so um, just to finish answering your question, why, the, part of the reason the trailer was bad sure. is that uh, the lighting and shading were bad. And then part of it is just the the quality of the animation shown in that trailer was like not so hot. Uh, it was a little too rushed. So in retrospect, it really hurt us to even make it. And we're starting to work on a new trailer now and we're going to have to do a, a much, much better job that really is more representative of what our game looks like. If you don't mind me asking, you put together this trailer and when you watched it, did you did you know that it was not going to be well received no i didn't really know i mean i thought it was like kind of okay uh and it people hated it a lot more than i expected but i i, I mean it's it's <laughs> fair like you know i i get sure. it we should have done better <laughs> well we've talked a lot already and uh why don't we set your story back okay. just a little bit um Tell me about Fantasy Strike. Let's give some context to the to the trade shows and to the trailer. Tell me about this game. <laughs> well, I don't know how much background you want because it goes way back. Uh, I started making tabletop games using this license. Using this, yeah. Well, take okay. me way back. Um, I'm ready. So, way back, you know, I was working on Puzzle Fighter HD Remix and Street Fighter HD Remix, uh, and kind of on the side, 
I was working on my own projects and I could I could have done anything I wanted and what I decided is that uh, I had seen many companies that I've worked at or consulted with or whatever have problems with the quality of their games because of the their burn rate because of how much they have to spend every month on employees and they're, and they you know they only have x months until they go to business and they have to ship early before a game was ready and I thought I need to do something on my own that isn't subject to that that if I need to take more time I'm not going to explode <laughs> so I chose tabletop games sure because you can do them you don't need a programming team you know and and whatever art you need could be done contract where you're only paying for the art they draw and not just keeping them on you know months and months or years and years uh so th that's why I chose right. a card game and um my first game I worked on was a card game I worked on was called Yomi and Yomi is uh, the, the word means reading in Japanese as in like reading the mind of the opponent or knowing what they're going to do uh, and the card game is kind of like a card version of Street Fighter where each deck is a character but to make that game I had to have a cast of characters and so I started by imagining a fighting game so this is going to be a card game that plays like a fighting game so I started by imagining the actual fighting game, the video game, uh, and it was to be called Fantasy Strike, whose initials just happened to be the reverse of SF and Street Fighter. And I had to plan out, you know, you've got to have like a rushdown character and a grappler and, and you know, all the gameplay archetypes on the one hand. Then you've got to also have all the personalities covered like you want somebody that's like really logical and someone that's kind of emotional and uh you just you know all these different personality types so that uh, players can identify with somebody in the cast and then a third category of thing is uh i knew that i couldn't really like dream up the the com a complete fighting game like in my head without ever testing anything and so i knew that i couldn't come up with all the the moves in a card game either like instantly like you know in a day or something it's something that happens over a period of time so to make sure that i had enough to work with i wanted each character to have some kind of uh gimmick or or theme that could be mined for ideas later like one of the like the main character uses wind magic well i don't know exactly what kind of wind move would be devised but at least there's something to work with there and another one uses paint and another one uh, has a ghost friend and, and, and so on. Okay. So, so the process of creating the, the world of Fantasy Strike is kind of lining up all those those three types of things we just talked about, like fun themes and gimmicks and all the personality types and all the gameplay archetypes. So I, I lined up all that in my head for the video game, then made the card game version of it, and then it took <laughs> it took so long literally years to make the art for the card game. I was, I was working with uh, Udon a lot there who does art for Street Fighter okay, um, and some other contract artists, but they were all just so incredibly slow that I thought, you know, this is taking so long, I can make whole other games while I'm waiting around. Oh, by this point, I had struck out on my own. I mean, you know, had, had left the working for uh, for other companies and was okay. focus, focusing on doing this for real. So I thought, you know, I can make other games, and I made two other tabletop games, Puzzle Strike and Flash Duel, and actually shipped all three of those at once. <laughs> oh, I, wow. I, I, yeah, I was able to finish the other two by the time Yomi's art was finished. They actually all 
they literally all shipped at the same time. I thought that was like a big surprise probably to the tabletop game world because I come out of nowhere. I'm like, okay, here's three games and all of them use the same new characters. <laughs> so are they all, I guess, do you call that being set in a universe? Yeah. Then? yeah that's the Fantasy Strike universe? Yeah, that's what I would call it. Okay. So tell me, I mean, what was it like? These were the very first tabletop games you had ever released, right? You didn't have a history of this. That's right. I had worked on... Uh, a card game, a digital card game called Kongai with Congregate.com. Um, right. Congregate.com is a site where like anybody can submit their Flash games or whatever, and Congregate themselves, as the platform holder, wanted to make a card game that kind of spanned the whole site. That, that they could say, play random game X and get a card in our meta game. Oh, okay. So that's that's what Kongai was, and I designed that for them. Uh, I was designing that. At the same time as as Yomi. Oh, okay. So then, uh, tell me what it's like to release not only your first board game but your first three tabletop games all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Like, what, what yeah. does that even look? I like? I was actually there. We released the beta for Kongai at the same time as as I believe the beta for Street Fighter HD Remix, and then at the same time I was in beta on Yomi. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was all three at once, and and that's you know three different player communities of gathering all their feedback. So that was a right. crazy time for me. Uh, what, what was your question though? <laughs> Sorry. Well, I, no, I was going to ask. I mean, you have to just be a madman to take this on. Were, were you eating? Were you sleeping at all when this was I all mean, happening? I've always worked a lot. <laughs> of course, I can tell. I, I don't know how else to put it. I have I have a lot of no, stamina right. for this type of stuff. Let me pick on that just a little bit, because there are a lot of people out there listening to this podcast who work a lot and who need to work a lot to work in an industry like this. How do you persevere through that? Do you have tricks or skills that work for you? Yeah, I, I don't know if my answer will help anyone, because it's just, I mean, yeah, I do, <laughs> but it's it's just so personal. So for me, um, I have a really hard time adjusting my sleep schedule or or being deprived of sleep you know in, in in college everyone pulls all-nighters but i never did that okay so for me it's like actually super important to get enough sleep and i never cut that when I'm working on my own it allows me to set my own hours so i can sleep whenever i want and i think that's a huge <laughs> benefit i'm a night owl so i stay up till like 4 a.m but i always get enough sleep that's not that's not a problem for me i think if if I, if I was sleep deprived, there's no way I could do even half of what I do. Uh, so I guess that's that's the starting point. But then, beyond that, uh, setting my own hours like is a big deal because it means there's some days where I just I don't do anything. I just goof off for a couple of days straight. But that gives me the energy I need to work hard all the other days. It's a bit so of a recharge, it, right? Yeah. 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 Exactly. And I use that all the time. Uh, it, it, if I'm working on something and I feel like I need a nap, I take a nap. If I feel like I want to watch TV, I watch TV. Like I just do whatever I feel like, and then pretty soon I'm like, okay, I'm I'm good to work now. <laughs> so I take advantage <laughs> of that just constantly, all day, every day. Um, I I don't. I, I if if I'm not feeling it, then you know I, I I'm not going to be productive anyway. So I just do other things. So you've worked in. Uh, or rather, I should say, you've worked on teams where it wasn't that way, right? Yeah, I mean, in that's the past, right. Yeah. You've worked with larger companies and mm -hmm. larger teams, uh, but it seems like the benefits that come with 
being indie and, and working for yourself and setting your own hours, that's really beneficial for you. Yeah, and I, I, like I said, it's a personal thing. I think it probably helps me more than maybe other people. <laughs> just because, uh, I, sure. I mean, creativity is like a hard thing to pin down. It's different for different people. Different people have different, you know, internal meters they need to charge in order to do it. Uh, of course. This just works for me. But yeah, I've I've worked the other way too, where you've you've got to go to the office and be there the set hours. It ends up being a lot of uh, kind of wasted time in those office settings, you know, where you're, you're just there for the clock. and. <laughs> right. No, I, I totally agree with you. Well, you released these games. What was the reception like to your first uh, tabletop games? Uh, so it was super good. And maybe I didn't even fully get like how fortunate I was at the time. Um, what do you mean by that? I'm th- well, I'm thinking back to, I'm thinking back to Yomi in particular, and how. Uh, so first of all, it was a huge financial risk for me, and that I had to pay for all of the art, uh, which is pretty substantial, and all of the manufacturing costs, which is very substantial, right? And all of the freight shipping and so on. Before there was a single dime of profit, and I and then you add in you know the other two games too which were cheaper than Yomi, but still still a lot. And I, I paid for all of that out of my own pocket. And since since then, in more recent years, I've been to various uh, panels on board games. I've been on various panels. And I'm always like way out in left field on these things where every time some, somebody who's uh, experienced in the industry talking to the, the new people says, don't ever put your own money into the, like a whole project. <laughs> It's crazy. It's never going to work. And then I'm like, well, that's what I did. <laughs> but, but everyone says never to do that. So I did the thing that you're never supposed to do. And I was really all in on it. I mean, I would just have been completely bankrupt if it didn't work. And Yomi sold a ton immediately. Uh, I would, the, the, the kind of distributor or broker I was working with uh, said that he had not, he, he was like blindsided by it, frankly, like, because I had set up a deal of uh, like how how many units he was he would probably have to ship every month or something, and we just way surpassed that. <laughs> he was really surprised <laughs> by it. Um, so it's it, I, when I say I, I didn't realize how fortunate it was. I mean, I realized that I put in all this money and that it was successful. But as time has gone on, and I've just seen so many failures, <laughs> I guess it it started to eventually sink in. Like, wow, that was actually very special that I managed to pull that off. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think the key was to that success? I mean, I, I don't know. Nobody knows these things. It's Right, like, of course. Okay, I I think Yomi is a really good game, so that's part of it. But, I mean, okay, it's all a question mark. Like, I'm just grasping at straws here. But <laughs> if I had to try to explain it, okay, part of it, you know, you of course the creator of the game is going to say it's really good, but I do think Yomi is a very good game. And then separate from that, I was so different from the rest of the board game world. Like my coming from a competitive background and caring so much about balance and about asymmetric sides, like having a bunch of characters that are all way different and, and play against each other. This is, this is all not what board games are usually about. Uh, so there was this kind of newness to it uh, that I, I think was 
exciting to a lot of people. And there wasn't really such a thing as like a fighting game card game. Like you know, now that's there's been there's been a, a, other games that have followed along in the same vein. But I was kind of doing a new thing from a different perspective, and uh, as good quality art and good balance and good good game design. So I think it's just a lot of factors and luck came together. Well, I imagine that uh, to some extent it has to also pull from your previous experience in that competitive scene. And I want to talk about that, that just a little bit. So let's turn back the clock a little bit. We'll take a side trip. Uh, take me back to those nine to five days. Take me back to your experience with the competitive scene um, and talk to me about... Uh, your time with Backbone and, and some of that work. Yeah, so I was way into fighting games, especially Street Fighter, uh, since forever. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't even know where to begin. Like, I was in the inner circle. I was one of the top tournament players. I helped organize the Evolution tournament uh, in its beginnings many years ago. That's the biggest fighting game tournament in the country. Of I course. don't do that any, anymore, but I, for many years, I was. Um, very involved in that and I went to Japan to represent um, Street Fighter Team USA uh, at their big tournament called Togeki also known as Super Battle Opera Uh, so so I guess I was this I don't know exactly how to convey but I was embedded in the community (laughs) like I knew I literally knew everyone in the United States who could beat me at Super Turbo Street Fighter. I knew them personally <laughs> because I had gone everywhere and played against them. And if they were good enough to beat me, it, it means I must have met them at these tournaments. Uh, there was no such thing as like, you, you, you couldn't be good enough to beat me and not be part of this. I, I don't say that because I'm like some god or something. I just mean anyone that was at that level had to be part of the community because there was no other way. Uh, so that, I mean, that's a crazy thing, situation to be in, to, to, to personally know all the other kings of a game, you know. God, yeah, of course. How did you end up getting into that in the first place? Was it just that you played this game and then just got so yeah. good? Or what, what happened? Well, I just, I just played it and played it. I was never, like, the best or anything. I just played it at my local arcade, and uh, I we would kind of refer to the other players as... I mean, you could think of them in different tiers of how good they were, but really, if you just boil it down, there was like the professional tier, as we called it, <laughs> and then the sure. I, I think we at some point started calling everyone else civilians. <laughs> 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 and um, I was always in the professional group, but maybe towards the bottom of them, uh, and just stuck with it and kept playing and kept playing, and eventually. Uh, you surpass, you know, you surpass other people if you stick with it long enough and can kind of reach new, new plateaus or new heights that you didn't of skill that uh, didn't realize you would be able to to reach by just by just sticking with it. Uh, I also had a like a pretty unique situation when I was at MIT in that. Um, so I'm from Sacramento, which is in Northern California, mm-hmm. and we had a, a scene there of pretty good players. But there were much better players in uh, the Bay Area, which is where I live now, at Sunnyvale Golfland. So I had this background where I had played against all the Sacramento people, and then I went and I, you know, I, I knew of the uh, the Bay Area people. Then I went across the whole country to MIT, and MIT just happened to be the best players on the East Coast, uh, and I was 
actually the best of them. I was definitely, for sure, not even close to the best on the on the West Coast. Okay, but I was on the East Coast, and and I had so I had a bunch of different opponents there, and I was kind of the big fish in my pond, and I would constantly come back to California every every holiday, Thanksgiving, Christmas, summer, every time I could, I would come back and I would visit the California arcades, especially the Bay Area ones, and so I was playing against probably the widest variety of opponents that anyone in the United States was playing against at that point in time. You know, because sure. who else would be traveling so much from East? <laughs> it was a crazy thing. Like, it was just because I went to school there but liked California also. Um, so I'm sure that contributed a lot to me getting good is, is just so much practice against so many people. While we're talking about it, uh, and I realize this happened later, but tell me about Bang the Machine, because this all ties in, doesn't it? Yeah, so Bang the Machine it was a documentary film uh, that, that Peter Kang made, and he just really liked the Street Fighter scene and thought it was interesting and thought it was a story that should be told. So he started uh, making a documentary about all of us, and I was uh, pretty key to it. I basically narrated like a big amount of it. Uh, and do, do you know what happened to that film? Do you know the, the tragedy of it? I don't think I do. Why don't you fill me <laughs> okay, in? Okay, so the, the sad thing is um, he was very far along in that film and had done a kind of edit. I forget the technical the industry term, but it's an edit where you put in a bunch of music that is not the real music because you're not going to be able to afford to license it or whatever. But it's just okay. it's just to get, like you can watch the whole thing and you can kind of get a sense of what it's supposed to be. And it's not done. You know, there'll be another cut that replaces all that music. Um, and also sometimes like in this sort of cut, the um, maybe the picture quality uh, is, is not the best or something. Cause, because, again, it's just a rough cut that's not finished. All right. So he had that. That's sure. fine. It's just a stepping stone. It's just a, you know, a thing you do along the way. And then terrorists flew planes into the Twin Towers in New York, and his office was right there. His office is like a block or two away or something. It was like right in the the blast zone. It was destroyed. Oh, my God. Yeah, and uh, he told me how he, he, like, okay, there's people running and screaming, you know, getting away from, from this disaster, and uh, the only people running towards it are firemen and him and his partner. Oh, God. <laughs> because he's like, we've got to get whatever footage survived. And uh, he was able to get, they had a safe. And so it survived all this, even though the rest of the place was melted. And he got that rough cut, but lost all the source material of everything. Oh, wow. And there's kind of no way to like extricate the music and it would just cost so much to you know license that and the the picture quality was not the greatest so it's like maybe it has to be enhanced or some of it can't really be reshot so he's in a really uncomfortable position where yeah there is a film and like he has shown it at events but it's maybe not possible to fully release it for real it's a pretty it's a pretty interesting film, though. <laughs> this whole story, I mean, the film itself is pretty good. Oh, my gosh. I can't even imagine. That's just, that's so crazy to me. Oh, my God. Well, uh, so you're, 
David, you're really good at this game, right? <laughs> Make a movie. <laughs> oh man, I don't even know where to go from here. You tell me where we go from here. What happens after you're after you're so good at this game and and this this movie is so painful? I mean, that movie was painful, but that wasn't my pain. That's just. <laughs> Of course, I mean, I'm very enough. sad for Peter Kang, uh, and uh, Tamara Kate Poo was the the director. Um, but I mean, my story is more about uh, what I did next, which was on the development. That was all the player side. But as a developer, I became lead of Puzzle Fighter HD Remix and Street Fighter HD Remix, and so it was a chance to take all that experience from Super Turbo Street Fighter and uh, t- tournaments had been going on for 13 years at that time and then make a new version based on all that feedback. So that was quite an incredible thing to be involved in. How'd you end up getting that position? Well, it was more just being in the right place at the right time. Uh, like I was I was working at Backbone and they had several projects with, with Capcom. I had started with Capcom Classics Collection, which was a collection of uh, old Capcom games emulated uh, to be on new systems and Backbone was especially good at that uh, excuse me uh, Backbone was especially good at, at emulating these old games and uh, Capcom Classics Collection 1 uh, it was kind of a big deal in that uh, Capcom was in a really tough position where Capcom USA was sort of obligated to deliver this this collection and technically had such problems they couldn't really do it uh and so i was the producer on that at backbone and we kind of saved the day and and did it <laughs> and, uh, yeah it, it was it was pretty fun actually to because we had such good tech people on that uh in particular that uh capcom would say well there's a bionic commando was a, a big deal i remember that that uh Emulating that was super hard, and they said like it basically couldn't be done with the right with the hardware that that the game would have to run on. And uh, we showed them like ninety eight percent working by a commando in like two days or something. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. So so that's how okay being involved in that is how I had anything to do with Capcom in the first place. And okay, it went so well they wanted they were like this is amazing we need to do more collections, and so we did. And then they they were like well we could do maybe other projects, you know, and so a lot of things were thrown around, uh, one of which was Street Fighter IV. So I worked quite a long time on developing the pitch for Street Fighter IV with Capcom USA, and that never happened. And uh, th- actually, that's, so you said, you know, that Peter Kang's story is heartbreaking. Uh, yes, and so is, so is the Street Fighter IV thing for me. What happened there is, after spending so so many months imagining, you know, what what should that game be like, and like I thought it was really important to have single player modes that were interesting and told a story and taught you how to play, and then the gameplay itself, you know, had to be uh, like new in some way and yet mostly familiar and kind of a greatest hits of everything Street Fighter had been up until that point, uh, and I really labored over that. Uh, there's an interesting little tidbit uh, where Capcom and uh, a Tokyo Game Show was rumored to announce something, and the entire internet believed it was Street Fighter Four, and it wasn't. It was just some. It was some game like nobody cared about at all. Uh, but okay, the internet didn't know that, and so the every gaming forum you could think of 
uh, speculated about what Street Fighter 4 would be like. And I just did nothing but read the internet all day, every day for like a week. And I read everything about what everybody wants Street Fighter 4 to be <laughs> and incorporated that into <laughs> our pitch. So I was really into this and very excited about it. And so was Capcom USA. And then it was it was denied, but for really the worst reasons. Like you would imagine such a thing would be denied because after looking it over, the people in charge didn't like it or something. That would be normal. But that but that's not what happened. Sure. Uh, what happened is they never looked at it. Capcom Japan had to approve it. They They wouldn't even read it or see it because... Why? Um, there was a major shift in management at Capcom Japan and the new management, uh, well, okay, even before the shift in management, there's always a tension between Capcom Japan and Capcom US. And it seems to be a Japanese thing in general that the same kind of like antagonism was going on at Sega Japan versus Sega US. I also worked on the Sega Classics collection. Oh, okay. So this is, there's like a, I don't know, like. Japan just doesn't trust us or something. <laughs> but um, So there's these tensions. And then there's new management. And the new management said that unilaterally, across the board, uh, all projects in the U.S., or maybe all projects outside of Japan even, but definitely all Capcom projects in the U.S., are canceled just by default, every single one of them, with the only exception being Capcom Classics Collection. <laughs> Because they were like, if you want to emulate our old games, okay, keep doing that. But all other projects are just automatically canceled, stopped, or, you know, dead in the water, no matter what it was. And we're going to reboot and retool and figure out how to do all our development outside of Japan. So they weren't interested in hearing anything, looking at anything. They were too busy shutting down everything. Uh, and then there was like a long period of silence, and then they made Street Fighter Four. Wow. <laughs> And you had no part of that? No, no, I had no part of that. Oh, my gosh. Did, I mean, did they ever, when they made Street Fighter 4, did they ever look at your pitch? Did they, did anything that you built or thought about or uh, pitched get in there? No, no, nothing. They, Capcom Japan, to this day, has never seen any of it, as far as I know. That is heartbreaking. You're right. <laughs> that sucks. Because, well, I mean, I just think about that week where you were just pouring through everything. You put <laughs> yeah. so much of yourself into it. That's a bummer. Well, right, and, and then also I... I mentioned just in passing, but I had thought really hard about how uh, the single-player experience is important. Like, if, if you're to the level where... Okay, I, I don't mean, like, an indie game, but when you're Street Fighter and you've got just, like, I don't know, tens of millions of dollars of development budget or something, uh -huh. at, at that level, uh, I think you really need to to have something to get, to get the average player in. And at that time, what I was looking at is how Halo was a multiplayer game but it had a really great single player experience. And StarCraft was the same way. StarCraft's a multiplayer game. It had a great uh, single player experience. And there was another one too, I forget. Another, another third huge game at the time. And all of them were, were like getting people in for the single player and then getting them comfortable with how the game felt and then trying to get them to try multiplayer. So that's what I wanted to do. And I spent so much time thinking about the story elements of Street Fighter and then have it to, to be rejected in this like really terrible way it would like it's it's maybe perverse but it kind of would have been better if they just didn't like it <laughs> right <laughs> you could have had some closure with it, or, or, some satisfaction with it or, something. Right, or i could find out you know why didn't they like it and then you know maybe learn something from that but 
but to have it just never be looked at and I'm thinking, yeah, this is pretty good actually. Uh, and it wasn't in my hands. That was so frustrating that I thought, well, never again. So what I need to do is have my own cast of characters, my own world. And a lot of the story elements that I've worked on here could just be in my game. If I ever feel, if I ever, you know, care to develop that, that aspect. And, uh, if it fails, it will be because of me. That's really what I was thinking of a lot during that time was that if I was going to fail, I wanted to be because of me, not because of like unseen forces in another country that could do anything at a whim. And I had, you know, no recourse over. <laughs> well, that's an excellent segue, David. Uh, that's Fantasy Strike right there. So take me to, let's fast forward back to. Um, your tabletop games they come out yomi is is selling like crazy you're quite happy with it yeah um take me from there to to present day fantasy strike so after yomi i just kept making more tabletop games Uh, i made let's see so i mentioned three already yomi flash duel and puzzle strike and then each one of them got uh, new versions and uh expansion characters they all started with 10 characters, and nowadays all of them have 20 characters in all three of those games. Uh, plus another game, Pandante, I made, which is like a... It's kind of like Texas Hold'em with pandas, and it's it's a, my way... It, it didn't actually... It's not... It didn't start out being like, let me fix Texas Hold'em. That wasn't really the goal. But it, okay. when I look back on it, it kind of is that, like... Like if you if you play Texas Hold'em, which you know is a is a fun game and all, it's not actually fun with no money. If you play it without money, it's just kind of boring. I can see that. I can get that. Yeah, like even people that like the game would say that that was not a great way to play it. And uh, that was just really telling to me because like, well, if it was a if it was truly a fun game, <laughs> like most board games are fun without money. <laughs> you know, if you add money into anything, <laughs> it kind of supercharges it. So I wanted to. Uh, make a game that kind of had similar elements to that, but it was fun for its own sake, and uh, did that by really emphasizing bluffing. It was It's all about highlighting bluffing and enabling you to bluff and making every game you play unfold some kind of story of the amazing lie that some player was able to get away with. Okay, so that's what that, that game was about. Um, well, so quick question a, before you get too far away from it. Yeah. How do you end up with pandas? What is that? What is that bluffing and pandas? That makes sense? Well, uh, from your point of view, it probably doesn't make sense. But, <laughs> but it, okay, in, in my world, it does because uh, one of the original ten characters in Yomi and all my other games is Lum, who is a panda, and his whole shtick is that he is a gambling panda. The idea is that his race of pandas uh, are just really into randomness and betting and just anything to do with gambling. Uh, so in Yomi. He uh, okay. Each character has a deck in Yomi, and it's uh, like a poker deck. The reason is to kind of help players be familiar with what's in the deck. So when you learn that your dragon punch is a queen, you go, "Oh, well, decks have four queens, so I must have four dragon punches." And you kind of have it. You probably played cards before, so you probably have a sense of like how likely are you to draw a queen. Just helps sure. helps you with your intuition. Okay, so the decks have poker notation, but they but the game doesn't usually use it except for Lum, and Lum is a character who is fighting but also like playing poker at the same time. <laughs> uh, that's how his <laughs> mechanics work. 
Uh, and I had always imagined him in a fighting game, because remember, the fighting game idea was first, and the, the Yomi card game was based on the idea for the fighting game. So right. the idea for Lum was not actually like a card thing where you play poker. It was based on Faust and Guilty Gear. And I really like Faust and Guilty Gear. In the, he, what he does is he throws random items, and I think he's this great case study about randomness. People often hate randomness and say that it shouldn't go in competitive games. And he is an example of like randomness done the best way possible. Uh, the the thing that you can get from randomness is improvisation. If I can, if you get a bunch of random useful things, but you don't really know which ones you're going to get at which time, you just kind of have to go with it and just do your best with whatever you get. Uh, Faust is a character who works like that, and in training mode where you practice by yourself you know, for hours and hours a day or something if you want to get good, <laughs> you, you can't uh-huh. really do much with with Faust. Like, you can't create elaborate setups with him in training mode because it's just pointless. Like, you're never going to, these things aren't going to happen in a real match or who knows what's going to happen in a real match. And I see that as a great thing because it, it means you're thinking on your feet and improvising as you play. That's interesting. And if his stuff was not random, uh, it would be all about set play. It would be all about, like, practice him a million hours in training mode and come up with all these setups and that's all you ever do. Uh, it would be the opposite of improv. So that Faust just stands out so much as interesting in that aspect that I wanted Lump to be that. Uh, that's why he plays gambling games and Yomi, and then at that point it's like establishes kind of the lore, and it, people really liked Lum, <laughs> really liked the whole weird panda gambling <laughs> thing. And so when I uh, came up with, with a mechanic, it actually started as just a game mechanic in a card game about about bluffing and how, how it would work a little differently than normal poker. Uh, I wasn't thinking of putting that into a literal gambling game. It was just like it would go in some other tabletop game. And I had I kept having trouble with it. And I asked one of my friends to go over it with me and, and help. And he said, you know, this would be so much easier, this mechanic, to, to work if you just put it in an actual gambling game. <laughs> <laughs> and then we both were like, oh, like with pandas, okay. Like it was just the obvious thing to do after <laughs> not obvious to you because you're like what what are these pandas doing in this game uh, but no now it makes so much sense and uh so essentially in the um collected universe that is fantasy strike pandante is this spin-off yeah right? yeah it's, kind it's of like this, a spin-off. this one character spin-off uh game that is a play on texas hold'em i love it i think that's so brilliant and to, just to be fair <laughs> like uh to show all sides here earlier you were asking me why is it that Yomi did so well? And I kind of tried to explain. Um, but sure. maybe we should take the other side. So Pendante did really badly, like super badly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like why? How badly? I mean, what, does that, it's, what does that look it's, like? It has sold just so horribly. Like, I, I mean, I'm, I don't even know the numbers off the top of my head, but just way, way, way less than I would have ever imagined. Uh, so it's been a spectacular failure, really, and and that was a, quite a surprise to to my group. Um, one of my playtesters said, "Oh, there's this for sure is going to be your biggest game uh, because it's it's the easiest to play, the most accessible." Uh, and we when we would test this game too, I was working on Codex at the same time, which we haven't mentioned yet, but uh, it's way opposite end of the spectrum. 
Codex is a very thinky, serious, like, use your brain, like super hard every moment type game. And well, we'd test both these at the same time, and you'd look over, and the Codex players are all like super serious, and then the Pandante playtesters are like laughing, and they're just ha they're just having a great time, and they're making all this noise. <laughs> uh, and it was always like that. Like everybody, it just. It, Pandancy makes people happy and joyful, and I tried to explain that in our marketing too. It's like it, it really joy is just the best word I can come up with uh, that we somehow managed to capture in this game. Uh, yeah, I mean I could go on about that, but so that's about why that is or something. But it, but it does seem to be the case that people get really happy when they play it, and that's what, that's what led my playtesters to think that it would probably be my biggest game. Uh, and it totally failed. So why is that? Okay, I can give a couple guesses. Um, I don't really think the panda theme was a negative. People seem to like that. Uh, but um, this type of game, if it's really going to be widely played by, by just kind of random people who maybe are not even gamers, uh, the rules have to be very straightforward and simple. And what happened is that because... It is a gambling game, and it really needs to work with real money. Like, if I, we wanted to make something where, if you were, if you bet real money on this, like it's all legit. I mean, it could be played in Vegas or something. It holds up at the highest level of play. It does not degenerate into something that you couldn't really spend money on, and 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 so that level of seriousness it meant that okay. sometimes we'd find a problem. Like, okay, in the two-player version there's a certain strategy that was like too good and made the game stupid and you should always do that and so okay we can fix that we can fix that with this extra rule and that just kept happening and by the time we shipped it I think there was just too many of these kind of exceptions and extra rules where I didn't quite like I knew I knew it was bad and had had been pushing to streamline as much as we could the whole time I'm I'm always the voice on these projects against my playtesters, actually, of like, this needs to be simpler, simpler, simpler. Uh, and yet my games still are pretty complicated. So you can imagine what the testers want them to be. Uh, <laughs> so I think I think what happened is that I got, like, even though I'm saying we need to make this as simple as possible, like, I kind of got used to some of its quirks. Whereas when you explain it to new people, it's just too many exceptions. So it has kind of this bad feel to some people initially because it feels like it's a little too complicated th that it that, than it should be compared to what they they think such a game should be that's that's one problem uh now i made a second edition where we massively streamlined it and i think that turned out really well so i think that problem is solved actually and in, in the second edition uh it plays like probably twice as fast like you can get through hands hands in about half the time we streamlined so many things uh and so yeah so i think there was a a real problem and maybe that had even persisted maybe like nobody cares about a second edition because they either had a negative thought about the first one or even more likely they simply never heard about the first one or any of this because it just didn't catch on but i think there's another bigger factor that maybe went against us i mentioned with yomi that it's just a guess, but it seems like it was a big plus that it happened to be like a new kind of theme, like a fighting game card game. You know, what is this about? Like nobody's really done that before. That's like a different angle. So I, I think it just 
I think it did even a little better than maybe the, the purely if you rated it on quality of game. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it just happened to hit the market like sure. in a way that, that people were they didn't know they wanted, but when they saw it, they were like, Oh, that's interesting. And then it's the opposite here, where I think when people see like, oh, it's a gambling game, they think, Well, I don't really like gambling games. Like Blackjack is stupid and Texas Hold'em is like boring. Uh and I get it because I don't like gambling games either, but I like Pendante. And I think that was like a hump we never got over is is convincing people that, yeah, like, yeah, we get it that you that you play board games and not gambling games because those are too simple. But this is like it has captured the, the fun that you like, you know, and it's also in this no man's land where uh, you get board game people saying having the, you know, the stigma that I just said. Uh, of like why uh, it's going to be too simple, so I I, I don't even want to look at it. Uh, and then the other hand, where a bunch of people go, well, why would I play this instead of poker? Uh, and I really scratch my head at that because it's like actually way more fun than poker, so that's why you should. <laughs> but but they they're like, well, it's slightly more complicated than poker, you know, because there's different abilities you can do as you play. I'm like yeah, that's why it's fun because there's different abilities you can do. But there's this perception that it's like. It's a little more complicated than poker, so why not just play poker? So from both sides, it's like it seemed to be a negative. Like nobody apparently wanted this game, uh, except all my playtesters. I, I feel like if you could just if you could just force people to play it once, then it, it would go over huge. But like nobody's even heard of this game. Reviewers wouldn't even look at it. I can't even. Well, I mean that's not about Pandante. I can't get reviewers to look at any of my games ever. Like the the board games market is so saturated oh really it's impossible yeah but literally cannot get them to review uh anything uh and if, it, if it's a kickstarter game like but it's not out yet it's a whole new level of like they they not only will they not but they will just draw a line in the sand and say do not send us anything do not dare send us a game that is on kickstarter and then once it's out uh they won't do that that they'll it's just really hard to get reviewers to even look at anything just because they're so inundated by millions of games <laughs> well what do you think about that that's something we've talked about on the show before um specifically in the realm of video games but also and we can talk about tabletop games as well there's so much saturation now with steam and indie games and and just this this whole world that's developed and the accessibility for developers and game makers what do you think of all of that how do how do people who want to continue to do this work handle and, and survive in that environment? Well, I know more about it in the tabletop world than the video game world because I've been selling tabletop games for like seven years or something. And I'm only, sure. of course, I've worked in the video game world for longer than that. But my point is that I've been very focused on the tabletop world for that for these last seven years. And even though I worked on video games before, it was never the same level of responsibility where it's like my company and my project. So I'm, I'm Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I'm a little new to the <laughs> to the video game world in that sense, but in the tabletop world, it's a big problem. Uh, I used to have, to have stats off the top of my head, but I something like five years ago or four years ago, there was this stat that showed how many board games were released not on Kickstarter, like there wasn't Kickstarter uh, in a year, and went to traditional distribution, uh, you know game stores and then the following year the number of games released on kickstarter 
just Kickstarter was twice as many board games as the total number of all board games released the previous year. Wow. And it's grown and grown and grown since then. So it means that uh, it's impossible to get like retail distribution. I mean, my, my games are... I do ha have it in the sense that any store that wants to carry my games can carry them. Um, these days they can go to hitpointsales.com and there's a link for if you want to buy games or sell games either way you can you can do it there so any any company anywhere in the world can and some do uh, I can walk into a game store and sometimes see my games but you know it's not great like uh, I have to compete with just so many games that I'm <laughs> I'm washed out and I'm, I'm like a nobody uh, so it's got, it's a problem that started many years ago. It's gotten worse and worse and worse and worse over time, to the point that I don't know what you do now. Like it's so hard. Uh, it's so hard for us to get any news coverage at all. For us to be even mentioned on Board Game Geek, like even if we have legitimate news, probably we'll get zero mention. Uh, I I don't know. I don't know what to do. <laughs> maybe maybe <laughs> don't make board games. Like I I don't know. But then what happens? Then we don't have any more board games, and we lose all these ideas. Isn't that... Well, you're in no danger of having no board games. You're Clearly. just in danger of having no board games from me. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break here, so stay with us. I'm Logan Schultz, and you're listening to Indie Insider. Hey everyone, thanks for listening so far. In case you were curious, here's a quick sneak peek at next week's episode. It's a student-driven program, but is it exclusively for students then? Or, or I guess break that up for me just a little bit. And, and this program isn't even that old, right? Uh, no, not at all. It started about two years ago um, by Isaiah Mann also a Hampshire student who's graduating soon. And so I'm now okay. taking over for him. Uh -huh. <laughs> sure. But uh, it's not exclusively to students. The main idea is that we're encouraging students to get together and make something. And um, that's primarily the focus. And um, on that same vein, our primary focus is education. Um, so but this is good for um, you know beginners or people just looking to work on some you know some projects with some collaborators something like that. Exactly. Okay. 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 Great. One more quick note before we return to the show. We love that you're here and enjoying the show, but we always want to share these stories and interviews with as many people as possible, and we could really use your help with that. Of course, if you enjoy the show, please tell people either in person or across social media. However, the absolute best thing you can do to help is to leave us a review on iTunes. Also, if you have questions for myself or the guests, something you'd like us to discuss, you can reach out to me via email at logan at blackshowmedia.com, or you can follow along on Twitter at Logan A. Schultz. Tell me about Codex. Let's switch just a little bit. You mentioned this other game you were working on um, at the same time as uh, Pendante. Tell me about Codex. Yeah, so Codex is my biggest game and 
I think my best game, I think it's the best game I've designed. Also the longest development. It took over 10 years to finish it and that I was working on it in parallel to all those other things all the way through. Uh, not, not the whole time, but, you know, off and on for that many years. And it started out as, uh, in Magic the Gathering, are you familiar with the Worlds decks? Which are the, yeah, the, of the top decks each year. Um, and they have different card backs. They're not tradable. Uh, do you know what I'm saying? Like you can't. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, they're not tournament legal. But anyway, it's just like right. here's uh, this guy's pro deck, and then here's like the deck that he it faced off against in the tournament. So I really liked those, and I thought they were just to me personally. I don't mean inherently, but just to me, they were the best Magic products. They were the most interesting, and in that uh, you could buy them, and then the, instantly you had a deck that was good. <laughs> I valued that a lot, and I remember thinking like. Uh, if I wanted to tell other people about magic, like all the hoops they'd got to go through and dealing with buying random cards, random packs of cards, which I now just totally oppose and boycott and to the point that it actually offends me that any, any competitive game that would, uh, have only a random way to get gameplay relevant materials is, is just, uh, it's offensive and should not be supported. All right. Yeah. So say, same if there's uh, the, any competitive game that has a forced grind. So League of Legends, for example, uh, you if you have money, if you say take my money, they won't actually give you a tournament strength character. You have to grind for uh, dozens and dozens of hours to get all the runes mm -hmm. and masteries, which is total garbage. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm against all that. Anyway, that's not the point. The point is these world's decks were good, and I liked them. I liked that you could just get in immediately and have fun. So all these years ago, I thought, okay, so what about a card game? It's like kind of like Magic, but um, let's go the other way. You know, instead of instead of it being just millions of new cards all the time that you put together in, in endless ways, what if it was more carefully designed? Like if it was uh, immediately fun out of the box, immediately full power tournament strength out of the box, and here's the biggest. <laughs> the, if you remember only one thing about Codex, this is it. <laughs> How do you make it so if you really liked the deck you played, you would be interested in playing it for 10 years? And meanwhile, I'm playing Street Fighter, and I knew people who had played Ken for 10 years. I knew people who played Blanca for 10 years. So it's doable in a game, but it's mm -hmm. not doable in actual Magic. And if the designers of Magic were here, they would say, yeah, of course not. That's that's not their goal. It is not their goal to for you to like one deck for 10 years. There's not enough there. You might like a deck type, like maybe uh, Sly, which is the name of Red Rushdown decks. You might like that kind of vague archetype and play all sorts of different versions of that over the course of 10 years. But not like just one deck. Uh, and I wanted to try this grand experiment of is there a way to make the, there be so much to the game, to make it so deep that you could be playing it for 10 years and still exploring uh, how to do it. And that is incredibly hard. It's, it's It took me so many years because that is a ridiculously hard design challenge. It's also one that no real company would ever want to undertake um, because it's like the opposite of how you would make money. <laughs> right. Right? Like, you know, Magic wants to do the other way. Like, how can we... 
I mean, I won't, okay, I'm not really making this claim, but just as a joke, like, you know, how can we make, like, the shallowest thing we can? <laughs> because we need to, <laughs> I, I, you know, again, that's a joke, but... Uh, the, the, yeah, how do you keep selling new cards every year? Yeah. How do you keep, you know, putting new ones out and want people to turn over? So the, the non-joke way of saying that, the serious way of saying that would be, like, if a given Magic card pool um, had kind of, like, a, a best way to play it, like a degenerate one or two decks... That can be okay for them, for Magic, because it, it won't be discovered immediately. It'll take time for that to really ever be figured out, and by the time it is figured out, there's a whole new set of cards that shakes things up, and so on and so on. But what I'm talking about, that would matter a lot, and uh, how the heck would you even do it? So, I, okay, a big hurdle here is Magic is already complicated. So if you want to make a game sort of like Magic, uh, but to be played so long and still be interesting, wouldn't it have to be even more complicated? <laughs> and like, hasn't it or isn't it already at kind of the limit <laughs> of what you would want? Uh, so th those are the design challenges. Now, what ended up what the game ended up being is um, really just a lot of fixes to magic, and almost like I think when I look at Codex, it feels like whoever made it is like in a bizarro universe where they just wanted to do the opposite of what Magic did in a whole bunch of ways. So, uh, yeah, like having predefined stuff that's powerful right out of the box is the opposite of what they would do. Uh, there's no randomness in your resources. I think that's just a terrible feel-bad and, and stupid thing for a competitive game. Like the, I accept that there's a randomness in card draw. I, what that does, it's more like Faust. When you get this card instead of that one, but they're both useful. It's like, how can I use my cards in the best way you know, I can? And every time I play, I get a different order of cards, so I've got to kind of think of my feet. That's fine. But if, you, if, if this hand of cards doesn't have enough lands to even play, and you just, you just can't play and you lose, that's just stupid. And it's like, <laughs> it's not fun for either side. It's like just poor design of a competitive game. So yeah, I mean, that was out to begin with. Um, another thing that was important to me is uh, when you customize cards in, in Magic or any customizable game, when you customize your deck, I, I kind of, I wish I could kind of wave my hands around and show you a visual of this, but what I'm imagining is there's this space, like a 2D space that maps out all the kinds of things you could ever do. And a certain deck, like deck A, is is like this really pointy... <laughs> line or pointy triangle in this one sliver of all the space because you know the decks you make are very usually very focused they do a they want to pick something and do that thing super well sure. so you you do that with your deck a and then my deck b is doing that as as well but in a different direction i have a different very pointy sliver of, of the whole space and it's entirely possible uh, maybe even likely that uh they don't interact you know, like I'm doing, maybe your deck is really good at killing creatures and mine doesn't even have creatures or something. Or like my deck is all about manipulating the graveyard, but you can't interact with the graveyard. Uh, so, so there's just all these cases of non-interaction, which, which is just not fun and, and not uh, conducive to a good competitive game. That's a big problem in, in any kind of customizable system. Uh, and um, let's see. So that was very much on my mind, uh, and it kind of ties into 
to okay bear with me this will come together uh, another, that's all right i'm ready <laughs> yeah another aspect of counterspells so counterspells is like you do a thing and then i say oh no you don't i play counterspell and it doesn't happen so what's good about that is that it's interaction like uh you almost anything you can do i can interact with that so it's potentially the the opposite of what we were just saying where you know we're going in totally different directions and can't interact so i kind of liked counterspells and uh, my very first attempt at codex was to actually bake counterspells into everything just all the time and it turned out to be very deep and excruciating to play like it was physically exhausting <laughs> to play when every little thing you do I can counter it and should I counter it so that was like an early attempt that, that completely failed now a method of all this that ended up working very well that ties together the last two points I made is uh, I eventually settled on the theme of a real-time strategy game kind of like Warcraft didn't start out that way. It just ha it just kind of turned out that the mechanics were pointing in that direction. But imagine that you have certain cards. Um, we'll call them your anarchy cards, and you have other cards, <laughs> your fire cards, and some other blood cards. But if you want to make a blood units, you have to have a building that can create them. So your building is something that's on the battlefield, and it can be attacked, and now you have to defend it. If I can attack that and prevent you from casting uh, or summoning um, blood units, then I've counterspelled you in a way, not not a literal way, but I've kind of pre-countered you. You know, like if you draw your blood cards later, you're not going to be able to use them because I've destroyed your building, and it's very interactive because it, it involves combat, involve me attacking your building and you blocking my attackers or something like that, uh, and so. That is a key aspect of Codex, and it turned out really well, exactly you know how I would hoped, in that you can interact with the opponent's plan, no matter what their plan is, because uh, whether it's a spell or a unit or whatever, there's something on the table they have to defend to be able to do it. Uh, and all decks have to go through this combat pipeline. So in, you could say that's a little bit more samey than in Magic, where... Um, a deck could be just have nothing on the table at all and be entirely about <laughs> manipulating its graveyard. Right. Uh, yeah, but it, it, the trade-off is that it's always interactive. Uh, and it's always, it, it's conducive to having every matchup be more fair, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I can kind of inherently do something about whatever it is you're up to. Uh, so that just worked out really well. Um yeah. It kind of sounds to me, David, like you, I mean, you made the game that you wanted to make and you started this whole spiel by saying that you, I mean, this is the game that you are the most proud of. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I have kind of been all over the place and telling you what it's about and maybe done a poor job here because <laughs> there's, there's, there's kind of so many aspects. No, no, of no. It. I, there are so many aspects of it. It's, it's so cool to hear because you're clearly so passionate about it and how you've gone about, you know, solving problems that you find and, and finding something that's just so constantly interactive and engaging it's really cool and this is also a fantasy strike game right so it fits yeah, in the entire yeah, rest of the universe it is. uh so it has many of the same characters not not all it's the only one of my tabletop games where i couldn't actually fit like the entire cast uh in because they just they were made for fighting games and didn't quite thematically fit in all the different pieces you'd need in a real-time strategy game uh, sorry, but I should really, I, I mean, I can't believe I talked that long about Codex without saying, like, its main central thing, which is the Codex itself. 
<laughs> I feel like I feel like I should tell you what is the codex in codex. Uh, so I gave you that whole speech about how people can play Ken for ten years in Street Fighter, but they can't play, a, you know, a red deck. So why is that? And my initial attempts of trying to add more complication, you know, like what if everybody could constantly counterspell everybody, didn't really work out. And what I found did work was if you add more breadth, I guess you'd say, rather than depth. So what if you could reach outside of your deck and access other cards? So in Magic, there's something called a sideboard, which is just a few cards that you can swap between games. But what if instead of between games, it was during the game? And what if instead of a few cards, it was more like uh, a huge palette that you could draw from? So your codex is a binder, a physical card binder, and you bring it it's just for you. It's not a shared thing with your opponent. It's the cards that you're bringing to the game. And if you know Warcraft or Starcraft, it would be analogous to, like, in Starcraft, all of um, the Zerg's units. Everything that Zerg could ever make would be in your codex. So you wouldn't make everything Zerg can make in a game, in a single game. You would pick a subset of the, of the thing, a build order. And what you're doing as you play Codex is you're pulling cards from that binder and adding them to your deck in a, in a deck-building type way where you're cycling through your deck and seeing those cards over and over. So you're, you're building your deck okay. as you play, turn by turn, and you're creating your build order for that game. And the opponent's doing the same. So you're both, you're both like building your deck as you go, but I don't know what you're putting in your deck, and you don't know what I'm putting in my deck until we actually play those cards. It's all secret. So it's kind of like a fog of war. It's like I see, I see some exciting units coming out on your side, but you actually made those choices a little bit earlier, maybe two turns ago. Uh, and if I want to shift course and change my build order, I, I can for the rest of the game, but I'm, I'm a little bit behind. So there's a value to kind of guessing or predicting or looking at the cues of what they probably are going to do. Uh, so we really captured that, <laughs> that element of real-time strategy well, even though that wasn't the point. That's not why... It's like that. The reason the game is like that is because that is where you get the depth. That's where you get the replay value. It's why you can take the red faction and play them over and over and over because like every time you play, it's a, it's a completely different type of thing you can do. Uh, your deck is actually composed of three different heroes. I mentioned in red, it, there's blood, anarchy, and fire. And those are like the th three different heroes uh, each have those specialties and they each come with units and spells to go along with that and you could mix and match those units and spells as you play so there's just so many just so many ways to play just the red faction alone so th yeah that's why it's called a codex because you're <laughs> you're building your deck from your codex <laughs> how'd you end up coming up with that idea um yeah it, it was a struggle so i i mentioned that my other thing was you know make add more and more complication and that didn't work, like other layers of things. And I started thinking about what the alternative of like a sideboard. And my very first idea was, well, what if, uh, so in Magic, we've got a 15-card sideboard. What if you had a 15-card sideboard and that's it? Like, you basically had a Magic deck, but it was a 15-card sideboard you could, you could access while you play. And I, I sort of like mocked that up and right. played it a little bit. It's like, okay. It's, I mean, I wasn't really excited about it. And so I wasn't sure, is that, am I even on the right track? Like, maybe not. And uh, so the, the, my next thing was like, well, what about the idea of an item shop? So in this one, 
uh, I have my deck and you have your deck, but then there's a deck of like a hundred cards that are random items that you can buy in a shop. And so it's, it's like my deck is always the same, but it's always potentially modified by all these items. And I tried that out and it's, again, it was like, okay, but it was not really like, you know, hitting me how it needed to. And then the, the true breakthrough was in this crazy thing called Momir Vig Basic. Have you heard of this? Do you know what I'm talking about? No. <laughs> okay, no, i got to tell you about this. <laughs> Momir Vig Basic. What a name, huh? So in, it's the thing in Magic. And in, uh, in that game, they may, I forget what they're called, avatars or something? Uh, maybe I'm getting the wrong word. But they did a thing where uh, it was kind of like a throwaway like it wasn't even really part of the main game um but the idea was there's these promo cards or something each one is a character and the character says uh like how many hit points you have you know normally you have 20 hit points but this would give you know some of them had like 22 or 15 or something and what your starting hand size was and then you got one power so it's sort of like you're playing magic but you start the game with an enchantment that, that you know gives you a different rule okay uh yeah so there are a bunch of them, and you, you know you can you can just like kind of make them up, and you probably would would design a bunch of the ones they really have, like you know your white creatures get plus one or something, or start with an extra mana, or and so on. But there was one, and his name was Momir Vig, that was so crazy that uh, he alone became a format. People would just play like forget all this other stuff, Momir Vig versus Momir Vig, and that's the only thing allowed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and you're like, wow, what? Is How does this guy has only like one sentence of text, and somehow he's a whole format? What's that about? Okay, I'm gonna, I'm probably not gonna do it justice because I don't have it in front of me. I don't remember the exact text, but it's something of the form, uh, like once per turn, like tap him, pay X mana. Oh yeah, and by the way, you can only your entire deck is only lands <laughs> when you play him. <laughs> okay, so all you have is lands. Okay. All you all have right. is like. Turn one, I have one mana. Turn two, I have two mana, and so on. So when you tap him, you pay X mana, and you then put into play a random card from the game Magic the Gathering <laughs> that costs X in its converted mana cost. So like you'd pay three, and then you get a random card that costs three from your entire collection, or just all magic cards if you want to play that way <laughs> and then they put this online too and and it was like literally all magic cards uh so you're getting like so much variation it's crazy like you know you pay two mana and then you get one of like i don't know five thousand possible cards will come out so people loved it because they just loved how ridiculous it was and how unpredictable and uh i, I started thinking about that i'm like okay i'm not endorsing that as like this great competitive format but there, there's certainly something compelling to it it's sure it, it is something you could play a lot and, and it would just keep being different and so that really sparked my imagination i was like well when i tried the sideboard of 15 cards maybe i was just way off on the scale of things <laughs> like i was thinking of the deck as your main thing and the sideboard is a few extra cards but um maybe it's the other way around uh like what if your deck was the 15 cards and the thing you're pulling from had thousands okay thousands is too many a hundred you know maybe a hundred's too many and uh it ended up being um well it's it's 36 unique cards with two copies of each 
Okay, so your codex has 72 cards, but 36 different cards. Uh, and that turned out to be this magic number that just really worked well. Like, it, it's enough that uh, it, it, I can basically bake three different magic decks full of effects into that. And uh, it's a lot to work with, but it's not too imposing. Because if I physically, like, hand you this book, what you do is you open it and you see a layout of a nine-pocket page on the left and a nine-pocket page on the right. And then you turn the page once and you see another nine-and-nine nine layout, and that's it. Uh, you've seen all the cards. So it doesn't feel imposing. And then sure. when people go, well, that still does sound like too many cards, <laughs> uh, which they may very well say. Uh, <laughs> if, they, if they actually play the game, they realize, oh, it's even way less uh, analysis paralysis than that because it's broken up into these different specs and tech levels and so on. Like you start the game at uh, tech zero and then you build a tech one building and a tech two and a tech three. So if you were figuring out like which cards to add to your deck, um, early on, you wouldn't really look at the tech two and three because those aren't relevant yet. So you'd only look at the tech ones, and then there's only six of those, and and so on. Like when you actually play the game, you realize that at any given moment, you're really only looking at well, depending on what type of thing you want to make, somewhere between like three or four or five or six cards. So you've got a set of thirty-six, but you're not looking at all of them every every turn sure so it, yeah it's it's just it, it, there's there's like magic numbers involved where some things feel good and other things don't and it just turned out that it's an it's really enough to have all the variation we wanted but um but not overwhelming when you actually play it that makes sense well congratulations on this game how has the reception been i mean you said you were so proud of it yeah i, I am so proud of it so the reception has been uh Super good. <laughs> okay, like <laughs> by far the best in that. Like if you go to Board Game Geek and you look at, the, if you can click on the, well, it's a little confusing how they have it organized on Board Game Geek. Um, there's a whole other topic that really a game like Codex, it should have a listing that's just Codex, Codex the concept, and you should be able to rate that. But you kind of can't. It's all by actual physical skew so what if the game is separated and you know what if there's a base and expansion and all that sure so yeah it's, it becomes really muddy but there is a deluxe edition which is a crazy thing i i made uh <laughs> normal people will buy the okay well okay there's a starter set which is like you want to dip your toe into it and go what is this crazy game about and i don't want to pay much money <laughs> it's only like 25 dollars. then there's a core set which is like where you would start for real and that was fifty dollars and then there's two expansions and then there's a deluxe set that has all of that together and more in a box that's way too big my point is that on board game game if you look at the deluxe set reviews that's kind of the best place because it's that's the closest thing to rating the whole game uh and the the bar graph there is nuts i would encourage anyone to go look at it because it's like all tens it's like <laughs> I, I actually i mean I haven't. I've researched this like only a few minutes, like not fully. But if you looked at all the top games on Board Game Geek, like I'm not actually aware of anything so weighted towards ten. Like even the top the top games. Um, I don't know if you are you familiar with Board Game Geek's rating system at all. It's a very weird thing they have going on. Um, only, I mean only slightly. Okay, so uh, you. 
So if you're only slightly familiar with it, then you would say, well, if it's almost all tens, then it wouldn't be the top rated game. <laughs> right? Um, but no, because the way their system works is imagine some game came out and it only had one rating, just one person rated it, and they rated it a 10. Well, right. that w probably shouldn't be called the best game of all time. It would be a little, of course. little misleading. So, okay, they've, they've got a precaution that uh, you don't even appear in the list if you have fewer than, like, 20 or 30 ratings. Okay, sure. But what if 30 people rated it a 10? Then is it the best game of all time? Uh, well, you might say yes, but they said no. They said no, even if the bare minimum rated it, we still we want that to be like more like the the five thousandth best, not the first best. So what they do is they take this it's actually uh, intentionally unknown and obfuscated, so I'm giving like a summary that might be imperfect, but it's basically taking several hundred, I don't know five hundred, seven hundred, who knows dummy ratings of whatever the mean value is of all ratings. so, maybe 700 ratings of 5.5 and applying that to all games. So if 30 people rate a game of 10, it's got 30 tens and 700 5.5s. <laughs> okay. And then it will be like the 5,000th best game. Um, so Codex doesn't even have enough rating. It has, I don't know how many ratings, 500, 600, something like that. Um, 516 ratings. Okay. I just so pulled it up. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, that's that's a lot of ratings. That is. is that is a lot of ratings, but it's still not enough to overcome the the dummy rating. So if I mean if like five thousand people rated it and it kept the same ratings profile, it would absolutely be the number one game on Board Game Geek because it's it's crazy shifted towards ten. Uh, I mean, I don't know how to say this without like sounding like an ass or something, but I'm just trying to point out it is very very well received. <laughs> No, absolutely. I mean, I don't think that you can ever sound like an ass if you are, you know, proud of something that you put this much work into. And clearly you're passionate yeah, about it. Yeah, so yeah, I am. And uh, I hope I got at least some points in being pretty honest about, you know, Pendante didn't do well, even though I liked it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, this one's... Sure, it evens out. Right, it evens out. So this one, uh, doing very well. And even then, we still have a really hard time getting any reviewers to look at it. You know, Tom Vassell reviewed it, and uh, I forgot what he what number he gave it but like 11th best game of all time or something and he replaced magic with it oh wow and he took magic he put, took magic out of his top 100 completely and replaced it with codex and then in in real life he sold his magic collection because he said there would be no reason for him to play that over codex that's incredible. That's got to be really validating. <laughs> yeah, I was like that's what I was going for is like I mean, I don't need to I, I I have to be careful because I don't I'm, I don't want to get Magic players mad because I think that they would enjoy this game as an alternative, as a different way of looking at the genre. Right, um, of course. Yeah, but uh, it, it is what I'm going for in that there is a certain type of player who liked a thing that Magic is doing, but like this this whole business model of like endlessly buying stuff is not for them, <laughs> and they would rather have this carefully designed full experience that just can go on and on for years if they wanted to. So there, there is a type of player that it's exactly right for, and I think Tom Vassell just happened to be one of those people. Do you? So here's a question for you, because um, I've played some, you know, collectible card games, trading card games, uh, and I've played some Magic as well. Do you worry about losing the 
collection aspect of magic because that's a big aspect of it as well is, is gaining those cards collecting ones that you care about and searching for certain ones and you kind of lose some of that with this right more for the yeah, game that's right we lose it completely i always saw collectability as purely a barrier to gameplay i mean i want to have all of the cards like that my character needs or whatever i want to play against people i only ever want to play against people who are at full strength i don't want to have a material advantage over them because they couldn't afford to chase rares or something. So if, when it comes to gameplay, collectability is a huge negative with no positive whatsoever. And as its own entity, like collecting for the sake of collecting, that's fine, that's fun, people like doing that, but it has such a negative impact on the gameplay aspect that I want nothing to do with that. Like I, I wouldn't be opposed to purely cosmetic collectability. Um, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, like, you can't even play the black deck or something because you don't have the rares. Right. I appreciated something you just said in there, which was that, you know, you don't want to play against somebody and have an advantage over them because they couldn't afford it. Yeah. And th that makes so much sense to me. Oh, yeah, that's... Uh, I mean, if you take one thing away from my whole philosophy, that should be it right there. Uh, I have a podcast on that called Uneven Playfields. And that's what just burns me up you can tell I'm, I'm triggered by it and like i'm physically upset when when there's unfairness when there's an uneven play field in that somebody has material advantage because they grinded more or because they paid more it's just it's so wrong to me and i i can't believe that anybody that cared about competition would ever support such a thing it's, it's so anti-competitive it's so against the spirit of what's great about competition. And that's so clear to me. I listen to you and I listen to your entire story and just bringing it all together. Of course you feel that way because you, your background is in the competitive, you know, is in competitive gaming, right? So I mean, you, you... Yeah, yeah, right. And so, it, I mean, can you imagine if I went to a Street Fighter tournament and somebody had like level 60 Chun-Li and, you know, it was better than my Chun-Li? Like if they came to the tournament <laughs> and they're better than me, that that's the that's the inequality that they are supposed to bring. That's what the tournament is there to test. Right. Is their skill. But when they bring something apart from their skill, a material advantage of a Chun Li that deals extra damage because they played for longer, what does that have to do with anything? Or they paid more money? What does that have to do with anything? That is just <laughs> it really upsets me. And I, I think some people don't quite get like, why am I so upset? Um and part of it could be that I've gotten so much out of competitive games that I see the value of of like basically a meritocracy. Like when I live in a world, competitive gaming world, where the people who succeed are the people who are actually good at the thing. And it doesn't matter uh, what color their skin is or what country they're from. You know, all, all these things that we, we fight to, to keep equal in the real world, like they really, really don't matter <laughs> in competitive games. It is truly a meritocracy. Uh, and and I, living in that world, I think is was a great experience. And I hope that young people get to grow up and see what a meritocracy is truly like. And maybe they can carry that into the rest of their into their lives and be even more upset when they see uh, racism or whatever. So, uh, yeah, it really burns me up when uh, when I see competitive games that are not fair. So Hearthstone, prime example. You can pay more, and you can get a material advantage. So I, I can't, I can't understand why anyone who cares about competition would pay into that. 
I, I wouldn't even play that game for free because it would be tacitly condoning the concept of pay more for power. That's so fascinating to me because that seems to be such a big aspect of uh, of the gaming industry right now. Whether it's uh, you know tabletop games or whether it's uh, video games, it's huge. It's huge. Uh, it, that's uh, I, I really appreciate kind of what you're saying here and, and what you're bringing to it and how uh, aggressively you're sticking by that. Yeah, I mean we've on my podcast, my co-host Photix uh, and I. Uh, discussed this many times over the years and i think i forget when it was it was maybe three years ago or something he's like you know what we lost <laughs> and we and we did I, it was i think it was something that uh, Tycho said you know of penny arcade right uh, i was ta- yeah i kind of kind of know him a little bit uh was a i actually wrote a guest column on his site oh, once cool. anyway yeah uh so i i was telling him how hard i had tried on this stuff uh competitive fairness and all that and he's like yeah yeah dude you sure did you know (laughs) good try but oh well (laughs) and um i I mean i agreed with him it's like the the tide has turned Uh, i I remember when i was uh very early in the game industry i went to the game developers conference and there was a session that talked about korean games and it was saying it was showing like what's going on in korea is kind of ahead of where we are so we can look over there and we can see some of the future of what might happen in the u.s and they said that a big thing over there is microtransactions (laughs) that was that there was a point in time when that was not a thing in gaming right Mm -hmm. you you just bought your nes game and you were done (laughs) okay so this session was saying microtransactions that's going to be a thing and now given that what kind of things are people going to buy? So one kind of thing people buy is power in a game. And in Korea, uh, according to the session, uh, that was very popular. But it's not the only type of thing. You could buy cos- cosmetics or more content or something. But uh, that buying extra power was was very popular in Korea. And that the presenter was saying when this wave hits the U.S., it might be different because the U.S. players are going to think that's ridiculous and th- there's not going to be nearly as much pay for power stuff. <laughs> but now I mean, <laughs> I mean god. Uh yeah, it turns out that wasn't true. <laughs> well, David, we have talked for a long time. Uh thank you so much for, you know, telling me the story of Codex and and talking me through this game that it seems to be just extremely impressive, so I appreciate that, and congratulations on it. Well, thanks, um, but I hope that it, your listeners know that my current project is the Fantasy Strike video game, which, after all those years of imagining it and making card games of it, now we're actually making the the video game, the fighting game video game. So that's that's what we talked about at the beginning, where I was showing that at uh, PAX South and PAX East and so on. That's right. So let's bring the whole thing back around. Mm-hmm. Tell me about... Fantasy Strike. How do you go from Codex and from uh, Pendante and and move into making the game Fantasy Strike? Yeah. So I had kind of dabbled in trying to make a fighting game, like with a, with a volunteer team, and you know we got like just barely a little bit way through, and it kind of fizzled out and didn't really work. Okay. So that's that's going on in the background, and then a couple of years later, the game Dive Kick came out. Do you know? Oh, about of that course. Game? Yeah. Yeah, so dive. So I, I know Keats, uh, who made Dive Kick, mm-hmm. and when I saw Dive Kick, I thought that's just a stupid idea. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just really didn't care about it at all, and had just the lowest opinion of it. Um, 
And I it actually went a long time without playing it. I didn't even play it until it came out on the PlayStation 4, which was way after it was first released. And when I tried it, I was really impressed. So go, go Keats, you won me over. <laughs> All right. And, and that's saying something when I had like a negative, like, you know, expectation. But I was really uh, won over by it. There's a lot more to it than I thought there was going to be. Uh, and I was really impressed with how much gameplay he could fit into just having two buttons. So for, for people that don't know, Dive Kick is a f- quote-unquote fighting game, but there's no joystick. There's only two buttons. That's it. That's the entire game. There's this dive and kick. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I was really impressed by that. And then I started brainstorming and going, okay, so that's a plus, and this game is amazing. But a minus is, even though I like it, I don't really care about going to a dive kick tournament. Like, it's, it's still a little lacking, you know, uh, from what I was hoping okay. for. So I imagined, you know, what? It, okay, I get what it's going going for, but it's it's shifted my thinking. Before dive kick, I was thinking like start with Street Fighter, but make it more accessible. And then after dive kick, I was thinking start with dive kick, <laughs> and then what can you add to the point where it's deep enough? So what if you could walk left and right? Okay, what if you had a single attack you could do on the ground, and so on and so on. And you know, we didn't stop there, but. You get you get the point. Like, what if you added this and that and the other, and then eventually you reach a point where you've added way less than what you'd have to to get to Street Fighter, and yet it it came a point where it was deep enough and interesting enough. So it put this this at this point it's just an idea in my head, but I reached a point where in my head I thought uh, there's kind of this new territory where. It's more complicated than Dive Kick. It's simpler than Street Fighter, but it could have the sim- a similar depth to Street Fighter just by stripping away its components. And I did a podcast about this idea. We, we had you know no prototype or anything. It was just in my head, my theory of how this would work. And then a programmer who I had briefly worked with on the f- attempt to make a fighting game previous years heard that podcast and was like, hey... Um, I could prototype this for you because I work for the Universal Fighting Engine, uh, which is a Unity plugin to make fighting games. And it would be super easy for me to just like mock up your idea. And he did. And right away, it was promising. Like, even when it was really janky and, you know, ugly, but it had the, the, the gameplay I was talking about, it was like, pretty interesting and it, and at that point it was a little too shallow but it was like close and so we're like okay what if we add a little more and a little more and we worked on that prototype and then I started inviting people to come play it and see what they thought and it was all positive like you know maybe, maybe one or two people didn't get it and everybody else was like definitely keep going with this so we just built it and built it and uh, at, at some point it became fun enough that it was clear it was worth investing money in, like real money. And then I started hiring a team and uh, eventually, you know, sound effects and visual effects and good animations and so on. So it, it just grew and grew and grew. At what point did it become official? Okay, we are actually, we're making something we're going to start pushing towards an actual retail release. This is going to be a real thing. Uh, I think we we prototyped it for like, let's see. I remember we started in we started in 
June and it's been 20 months or something since then. So we started in June and then by about Christmas of that year, we started to think, okay, this is, this is real. And it, and at that point the challenge was just how do we ramp it up? Like, can we even find an animator or can we even find all these people? So how many people are working on the um, game right now? Uh, so I have a team of about 10 right now, okay. which is still very small. And we struggle with, you know, how small that is. And uh, that, like, we're basically trying to make something that you can put next to Street Fighter and they both look good. And we're going to have actually way more content than Street Fighter V, but that's not <laughs> saying much because Street Fighter V has, like, nothing in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that was a big story, too, last year. I mean, that was huge. I know. Yeah, it was huge. I have to tell you, this is so funny that I Googled just the phrase arcade mode. That's it. Just <laughs> arcade mode. Okay. And I and then what I got, I didn't even know was a thing on Google. I didn't even know this like, existed. But uh, sometimes when you Google something, there's like a special box that shows up that's separate from the results. It's like, I don't know, like they think that's the important thing. Like if you Google like movie times, you get a special box that shows you movies near you or something sure i don't know if you've you've tried that so the special box when i googled arcade mode it was like a snippet of an article from forbes magazine with the headline street fighter 5 says they might add an arcade mode (laughs) but everybody's mad that they don't have it or something (laughs) and then every result was the street fighter 5 no arcade mode god yeah yeah Yes, that was yes. You're right. That's a whole thing. Um, it was a big thing. Well, uh, there is a website for um, Fantasy Strike right now, and there's a yep. Patreon as well, so people can actually support you and follow along in the development, right? Yeah, that's right. So FantasyStrike.com is our website. We've got forums there and a Discord chat server. Uh, then uh, people can play the game immediately today if they want by clicking the links to our Patreon there, which is Patreon slash Serlin. And every month we do a new build. And, you know, so as you support us along the way, you get to see updates. We're all, that's, it's kind of a small thing. It's not like a mass market way to fund a game. It's just a thing we're doing, you know, for now. And then later on, there'll be more options. We will be on Steam. Um, So we're going to do a Steam early access. Uh, We're already approved for that, but we, we want to spend a few more months getting it really solid before then. And uh, I guess what's a little awkward right now is I don't know to announce this or not, but we, we may be working on some crowdfunding, which would be a big thing. Oh, okay. So I, I don't actually know what the future will hold, uh, like exactly you know who wants to support us in which way. But what's for certain is that we are on Patreon right now, and we will eventually be on Steam and PlayStation 4. There may or may not be other options uh, to support us in the meantime. Got it. So the best thing for people to do really is to follow along, right? They can follow along on your website and on yeah, Patreon yeah, they, and social media. They can sure. go to, yeah, they can go to fantasystrike.com. We've got news. to tell you what's going on. Uh, you can sign up for our newsletter or something uh, or just read the site <laughs> <laughs> or join our chat and talk to us. That would, that would be great. Uh yeah, but it, uh, the Patreon's been really fun. It's it's actually really... Uh, I started doing it with Pendente. So I did it with Pendente, then Codex, and now Fantasy Strike. And 
all all those games. Just whenever there's something new, we put it out to our patrons, and then we hear what they say. And what's interesting and maybe unexpected is the feedback is really good. Like I, I used to do this stuff publicly, like just show all every step of the way of development publicly, and it worked for a long time. But then when we got big enough, we started getting like the vocal minority who are just just really complaining and upset about things and kind of drowns out other people. But we found it on Patreon for whatever reason, like it's almost all great feedback (laughs) and it's just this happy, fun experience. That's awesome. And you actually host a podcast too and you kind of tied that in, right? Yeah, that's right. I haven't, we haven't done an episode in a while, so I'm, I'm slacking on that, but we did actually two podcasts. So one of them is a public one and, uh, you can listen to all of the episodes of that on Serlin.net, which is my personal site. Uh, that's just about kind of general game design topics. Then the other one is for our patrons only, and it's called Raw Game Design. And on that one, uh, they get to see kind of behind the scenes. It's, uh, it's, it's really not for the general public. It's more like, here's what I'm working on. I, like, I want to make a character that works this way, or I'm trying to make a menu that does this certain thing, <laughs> or I have an idea for a game we could make next, but it's only like halfway there. And then I work through it with uh, my testers or you know employees or whatever, and you get to hear, you get to be a, a fly on the wall of, of like how are these things decided? <laughs> you know, how do these conversations go? I think a lot of people have no idea how they go, and so they kind of want to see see into the process. That's what that one's about. Absolutely, that's that's really really cool. It's I appreciate how open you're being, and you kind of said that's just been a really positive thing, especially through Patreon and, and getting that feedback. So that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, David, we've been talking for a very long time. I really appreciate you just opening up and, and sharing all this with me. Um, I do want to pick your brain about a couple of broader questions. And actually, because of how long we've talked, sure. I think I'm going to minimize it to one thing, if that's all right. Oh, yeah, whatever you think's best. So, what, are you, what are you interested in? Here's what I'm going to ask you about. This Fantasy Strike, this is your, if I'm not mistaken, first time with a video game in the indie space is that right as an indie yeah it's a little hard to say because i i also made video game versions of puzzle strike and yomi which are on steam and ios oh okay um but somehow it's that's like it's such a different thing like i don't know those are not covered by news places that cover indie <laughs> games it's like they, they don't exist to that segment so in a way uh yes we'll call this my first Video game in the indie space, yeah. So then my question is this. What, if you had to pick something, your number one takeaway, what has been the number one takeaway from your experience being an indie developer so far and working on Fantasy Strike? Um, well, could you elaborate on, on what, what, what do you mean by takeaway? Like something that that would help other people or that... or that it just... Not necessarily, because we'll get to the advice in just a minute, um, just like we always do on every episode. Um, okay. But I, I guess what I'm asking and... Uh, I appreciate you you wanting to figure out what I'm asking, so thank you. Um, I guess what I'm asking is, you know, I, I want to hear what you think about being an indie developer in the video game space right now. Like, what do you, what is it like being in this industry, especially since your previous work, uh, you know, making video games primarily has been, uh, you know, with larger companies and, and working kind of that nine to five like we talked about? Well... I mean, when I think about the whole experience, uh, I guess something that is 
that is true here and was true in the tabletop space is that it really involves just so many different roles. Like I have to wear so many different hats and that's difficult. Like what I want to do is be a developer. Uh, if I, the, the, when I look at like the hours of my day, the more hours I can spend towards uh, what I call putting pixels on the screen. I heard that phrase somewhere and it just always stuck with me. Uh, what that phrase means is like, let's say you're at a company and you go to a meeting and you all discuss what some new feature is going to be like. That could be an important meeting uh, and it could shape the, the future of your project, but it didn't put pixels on the screen. Right. <laughs> it didn't literally put a thing in the game's code that the players can see or hear or interact with. And uh, it is my personal goal. I started this when I worked on Street Fighter HD Remix to every day. Uh, try to put pixels on the screen somehow uh, and I often fail at that there's often days where there's just so many other things I've got to do I've got to make like I don't know a banner for our booth or rent hotel rooms or how are we going to transport things to our booth or you know it's just all these things that don't put pixels on the screen that have to be done of course. Um, there's a lot of them in a lot of different realms so uh, my my takeaway of, of of just years of working on both tabletop and uh, and video games is the the struggle of trying to put pixels on the screen, but being pulled in so many directions uh, at once, and and just having to wear all those different hats. Uh, it, yeah, it's it's hard. <laughs> it sounds hard. And how do you go about? prioritizing that how do you ever end up having time to put pixels on the screen well how people organize is yet another personal thing uh what i do is i have a text file and i write a list of the things that i want to do that are the most the few most important things like uh maybe two or three of them might be things in the game i i think i can improve but a bunch of other ones are like prepare for some trip or um you know, make graphics for an ad or something like that. Uh, and I just kind of keep my eye on that list all the time. And just, I guess what it's doing is it's kind of haunting me and helping me see like, oh, there's these few things I could do that would help the game. And they're always there. They're always there on this list. And so I need to, I need to get to them. And whenever I cross off a thing, uh, often that, that isn't about something directly in the game, that the feeling that gives me is, oh, now I'm closer to being able to do what I really wanted to do, you know, to to actually improve the game itself. So, I mean, that's kind of vague, but maybe that maybe that is helpful to me. Uh, the idea that I'm I'm often looking at a list that's not that long, uh, that's that's got the things that I'm trying to get to on it. There are some days where I do zero things on that list because there's just so many fires to put out and you know can i can i approve some new animation or some new model and the model's terrible and i need to explain you know what needs to be different and so i just end up never getting to to my list um, but at least it's it's there in front of me and i i think about it it's always just fascinating to me to hear you know what different people do to approach their work and especially when your work is you know wearing so many different hats and and working the job of so many people and especially you know creating something that came from you you know I, I totally understand so thank you for sharing your list and your approach with me I appreciate it 
<laughs> did other people have better answers to this? I'm going to have to listen to your more episodes of your podcast to find out what everyone else David, said. David, you are going to have to listen to more episodes of my podcast if you want to find <laughs> okay. out. No, no, no. It, it's, I will do I that. I think everybody has different approaches, right? I mean, I'm a list person too. So at the beginning of every morning, I, I usually sit down and I make my list and I usually write things down because I remember them better or they just stick with me better if I actually, you know, pen and paper, write them down. Um, and that's kind of just how I work. But I know a lot of different people do different things. So um, it's always cool to me to hear what other people do. And, and I, I'm sure there are other people out there in the audience listening to this who will who'll take what you've said and think, oh, man, that's I should give that a shot. You know, maybe that'll work for me. Okay. <laughs> well, David, thank you for humoring me on all of that. We've reached the end of the show. Sure. And, of course, at the end of every episode of Indie Insider, I do ask my guests to share a piece of advice, something to send home with the audience to get them motivated, to you know, get them out of a, a rut or a mental block if they're in it. it just something that has you know been true for you and, and something you'd like to share. What's some advice? I mean, that's tough because it's so broad. It is. I, <laughs> but, I know. Okay, so for me, I am a systems thinker. I think of everything in terms of how the system fits together. And I've when I daydream and think about games, sometimes I've got something in my mind where I think, that system would be interesting or fun, and that's worth doing. And when I feel that way, uh, that's when you need perseverance. <laughs> so I feel like the advice I'm going to say is kind of what I need. I need to hear myself too, <laughs> in that uh, you've just got to stick with it. And everything I've ever done, there's been people who think it's super great and people who just totally hate it, and often. Often, uh, maybe even mo more than half the time, the people who hate it don't even hate it for what it is, but just like for various tangential reasons or my name or something I did a long time ago or whatever. And so I encounter like resistance to everything everywhere. And it's very frustrating and energy sapping. But you just got to keep going because there's other people out there that feel the opposite way. Uh, you know, you, you just... You've got to work for them <laughs> and, and for yourself, too. Uh, I, I guess that's a, a different thing to, depending on artists, like how they how they view their creation. But for me, the most satisfying thing is if I can make something that I think is good, no matter what anyone else thinks. That's the most satisfying thing. And then it's bonus and gravy if other people like it, too. <laughs> um but no matter what the case, or no matter who you're doing it for yourself or for somebody else, uh, anybody who's done anything will tell you it's just always a struggle. There's always this endless obstacles, and only the most perseverant people can stick with it. So you you got to really care about what you're doing, uh, and and I guess even make sacrifices in life, you know, to. To be an indie dev, there's a lot more stable ways to earn income. Well, for sure. Uh, but yeah. there's 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 some of us that just feel like we didn't have a choice. Like we we just have to do things. Uh, the the drive to make something is really personally my biggest drive. It's what I want to do. Is I want to make things, and and so I would hope that uh, the listeners out there feel that as well. Feel like a, as a compulsion to create and. Uh, and have the perseverance to stick with it and see it to the end one way or the n another because there's going to be a storm somehow that will try to stop you. Well, I 
think that's pretty solid advice, David. Well done. You did good. Uh, okay, thanks. Of course, we've been talking with David Serlin. Uh, he's working on a game called Fantasy Strike, which you should go check out. Uh, and, of course, we've talked about Codex. We've talked about your tabletop games. Um, the smash hit, we'll say, that was Yomi. Um, <laughs> right. In your experiences with Street Fighter. I mean, this has just been uh, a fantastic episode, and it's been a long one. I've had a blast talking to you. So, David, thank you so much. If people want to find you out on those interwebs, you mentioned it before, but go ahead and say it again here. How can they how can they follow your work? I'll give them three websites, okay? There's Serlin.net, which is my personal website, and there's a bunch of articles on game design there on, on Serlin.net. Then there's FantasyStrike.com, which is for my new fighting game. And the third one is SerlinGames.com, and that one is for all of my tabletop games like Yomi and Codex. David, you've been fantastic. Thank you for making the time. Uh, I know you're a busy guy, so I really appreciate it. Yeah, and our show went on pretty long, but it's because they made a lot of things. <laughs> so what can we well, do? Well, I mean, which is awesome. <laughs> so uh, congratulations on all that. I look forward to uh, Fantasy Strike, and I, I'm excited to see where it goes. And once the game comes out, I would love to have you back on. We'll talk about it, all right? Yeah, that would be great to talk about the kind of retrospective of how did it all go. Of course, the before so and after. That. Would be the comparison. Great. Yeah. David Serlin founder of Serlin Games and creator of Fantasy Strike. Thank you for joining us this week. Again, if you have thoughts, questions, or ideas you'd like to share, you can email me at logan at blackshowmedia.com or reach out on Twitter at Logan A. Schultz. That's L-O-G-A-N-A-S-C-H-U-L-T-Z. This podcast is presented by Blackshell Media a publishing and marketing firm dedicated to helping independent video game developers reach massive audiences, publish financially successful titles, and turn game development into a career. It's the company's mission to help game developers get more of what they want out of a rewarding opportunity in the game industry, more fans, and sustainable revenue to keep them moving forward. Blackshell Media also has an educational branch to their company, where they offer free articles and resources for aspiring and growing developers, which is why we get to bring this show to you every single week. You can find Blackshell Media on the web at blackshellmedia.com and on Twitter at blackshellmedia. This show is on iTunes, Google Play, and other podcast services across the web, as well as the Blackshell Media blog. If you enjoy what we're doing here and want us to keep doing it, or if you have things you'd like us to change, please go to your favorite podcast provider and leave us a review so that we can keep sharing these episodes each week with you. Special thanks this week goes out to Raghav Mather, Daniel Doan, and Raquel Hayner, as well as Benjamin Tiso over at bensound.com for the use of his song, Going Higher. I'm Logan Schultz, and you've been listening to Indie Insider. We'll see you next week.